Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. I'm Helen. And today we are going to be talking about the Claremont serial killer. This one has been in the news a lot, I guess, in the last couple of weeks because the decision has just been handed down. Yeah. So as far as serial killers in Australia go, there isn't many. Really? No. I feel like there's quite a few for this place. Do you reckon? I can list a few. Who? Backpacker Man. Oh, Ivan Milat. Um, Snowtown. Yeah. Um, this dude. Yeah, well, that's three. There you go. That's three. And they were all in the in the 90s. Some shit was going down. Dangerous time to be alive in yeah, Australia. Yeah, we weren't alive, so. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, the decision has just been handed down for this case. It's 619 pages long. No, I did not read the whole thing. That is long. That's really long. For reference, this is very important for all you nerds out there, Marbo, when you print it out, is like 140, I think, in its entirety. And that's probably like one of the most like complex and important decisions. Yeah, someone didn't tell Justice Hall, who was the judge in this case, that um, we don't get paid by the word anymore. So he just went off. Mm-hmm. Um, and his associates whoever you are, ALA and KR, I see you guys. I know if you're listening to this, I hope we do your uh, your writing justice and I know you would put in some massive overtime, so F's in the chat. Are you networking? Yeah. <laughs> Hit me up. Ever since uh, Graham Potter, I've realised I need to grind harder, just like my man Graham. <laughs> Hit her up. Connect with her on LinkedIn. Yeah. You guys can talk about this decision. Rizzle's all over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me know if I miss anything. Yeah, I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that it was very thorough. There's evidence summaries for like every single shred of evidence, every single witness. But we'll really try and hone in on like the the crux points of this case. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd just overwhelm you. There's still a lot of juicy details in here, I think. Mm-hmm. So I'm keen as a bean. Yeah. To get into it. Keen as a bean. These cases went unsolved for over 20 years, and it took some real forensic breakthroughs to finally catch this guy. So that's pretty juicy. It's like your classic happened in the 90s, we weren't advanced enough, put stuff away, brought stuff back out. Yep. Testing. Yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah. It's like CSI. Yeah. It's like, I think now there's like a whole wave of science catching up to crimes mm-hmm. mood, like the Golden State serial killer where they did the crimes when they couldn't be found, and now catching up to them. Yeah. So this is one of those. It's like our own. It's Australia's own moment. Nice try, you guys. (laughs) There are six main events we're going to talk about, and we're going to split them into the first three and the big three, just to brief you guys, so you guys can keep up. So let's jump into the first three. We begin our case today in Perth, 1988. Perth is the capital city of Western Australia, which is quite removed geographically from basically the rest of Australia. It's further away from the East Coast, and the East Coast is to New Zealand. I know that, because I think about that all the time when I fly home to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. That you could fly that far and still be in Australia if you went the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Big fucking piece of land. Big ass land. (laughs) So wide. (laughs) So, Huntingdale is a suburb 20 kilometres southeast of the Perth CBD. 
A young 18-year-old girl, let's call her A because she has remained anonymous. Mm -hmm. She went to bed on the 14th of February. During the night, she was awoken by the feeling of something on top of her. She felt pinned to the bed and couldn't move. A hand covered her mouth, and initially, she thought her boyfriend had snuck in. So she said, it's okay, I won't scream. But the person had her in a headlock, one hand over her mouth and one behind her head. And she said, what are you doing? Let go of me. She manages to get a hand free and reached up to stroke what she thought would be her boyfriend's face. But when she touched it, she realized it wasn't her boyfriend because this man had facial hair and her boyfriend had just shaved that day. Or he was a little mousy boy and couldn't grow a beard. But also maybe the fact that she noticed that it was shaved meant that he usually had a beard. The beard man. Mm, right. In his defense. Okay. When she realized this, she immediately dug her fingernail into the man's cheek as hard as she could. The man got off her and ran to the doorway, and for a split second, she and him stared at each other in the dark before she turned around in her bed and pounded on her bedroom wall, screaming for her dad. When she turned back, he ran for it. Later, she found a kimono lying on her bed along the wall, as well as some black knotted stockings and another piece of material. Her dad went to call the police after this, but the phone line had been pulled out. Eventually, they contacted police and they came to investigate. The police took the kimono, stockings and material. They didn't belong to her. They weren't her clothes, as in. So they took it as evidence. Cut back to Perth's CBD two years later. Another woman was working at Hollywood Hospital as a senior social worker in 1990. She was working in her office on the 7th of May around 1.30pm when a Telstra worker came into the office and asked to use the bathroom. She agreed, and he used the toilet and then went to leave the office. It was a normal occurrence, nothing out of the ordinary. Except, he then says, Oh, I've dropped my pen. Can I go back and get it? Suddenly, the man put a cloth over her mouth with his right hand and forced her out of her chair with his left arm lifting up her shoulders. She started fighting and kicked him hard in the leg. They struggled for about ten seconds when he stopped what he was doing. I think she kind of like death rolled, death rolled and like shook him off. Like a real croc. Like a croc. She staggered backwards and moved away from him. He moved towards her saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But she was moving as quickly as she could towards the door. With only one shoe on and her cardigan hanging off her, she ran up the ward. The woman ran from the office and found a doctor. She was in shock and couldn't properly say what had happened. But this doctor and another doctor stopped the man and told him that he needed to stay there until the police arrived. He complied and was very upset by his own actions. Apparently, he appeared very upset, but maybe he was just upset that he was caught. Although he did do the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know. Yeah, but that was strange. only after she, he knew she was going to run. Right. And he was like, oh, you know when you like are playing with your, you probably don't, but when you're playing with your little cousin or something or your little your sibling... And you hurt them, and they're about to cry, and you're like, no, 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 right. you can have this toy, you can play with it. Right. Just so they don't go and get their mum. Yeah. I used to do that all the time. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I was a big bully. <laughs> the man complied with the police when they arrived, giving them his fingerprints. He was charged and pled guilty to common assault, and was sentenced to two years probation. What an odd occurrence. Yeah. I dropped my pen. Attacks her. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm sorry. Oh, he- please guilty. What does he want? He's already right behind her. He's like, I dropped my pen. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, yeah. Mm. Doesn't seem, see, you know what? It seems a bit spur of the moment attack. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? The whole it? thing is quite messy. 
Five years later, on Saturday, the eleventh of February, nineteen ninety-five, another incident occurred. This is the third of our first three.、Mm. First three, we're gonna call it. As you can probably tell by now, all of these girls have remained anonymous, so we'll call this one K. K was a seventeen-year-old girl who had just been dropped off by her sister at eight p.m. to go to a party at the Claremont Aquatic Center. <laughs> Pool party? What is that like a oh pool? Yeah, it's a pool. I thought of like <laughs> aquarium, <laughs> Sea World. <laughs> you know, you can have parties there as well. I guess so. This is a pool, right? She had two drinks there, and then at nine thirty p.m. was then taken to a party in Mossman Park, about a ten-minute drive away. She stays at the second party until eleven p.m. when she heads to Exit Nightclub in Northbridge. I'm sorry, who calls their nightclub Exit Nightclub? Please exit. You want to go to Exit? No, no. I want to leave. Yeah, <laughs> you do want to go to exit because you always want to leave. <laughs> yeah, this would be my place. It's in the title. She catches a taxi and arrives at eleven thirty p.m. She then leaves exit nightclub and heads to Club Bayview at one a.m. God, this is some seventeen-year-old energy. Yeah, you're probably all wondering. This girl's seventeen. Well, guess、yeah. what? She had her sister's ID, her older sister's ID. That checks Classic. out. Classic. Damn, she's making the most of it though. Hell yeah! I would、yeah. be going home at one. Not if you're seventeen. You're you're full of energy. I'd be going home at eleven thirty. I get in a taxi. Please take me home. <laughs> no one doesn't make it to exit nightclub. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I exit the scene. <laughs> so she heads to Club Bayview at one a.m. There she danced and talked with a few friends. At two a.m., Kay leaves Club Bayview and bought a hot dog with some friends. Oh, like a drunk munchie. Yeah, that's a mood. However, she only had fifty cents left after this. Didn't really,、uh, didn't really budget past the hot dog. She didn't. But I can understand that. Really important.、Yeah. I can think of nothing but food after leaving the club. She had tunnel vision. Yeah, <laughs> on that hot dog. Yeah. So she couldn't catch a taxi with this fifty cents. So she decided to walk to a friend's house in Claremont to stay the night. You know what is would have been an option. What? Instead of walking to this friend's house in Claremont, like. Staying with those friends. Someone would have been at that house probably. So like she could have just got there, been like, wait a sec, knock on the like, go in, knock on the door, be like, hey, hey, can I have like ten dollars? I need to pay this taxi. Oh, do you mean she asks for money before she leaves the house? No, no, like when she gets there, when the taxi drops her off, and he's、oh, like, that's six dollars. Yeah, I see. I yeah. see. Yeah. 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 I've already long forgotten how taxis work. Yeah, same. But anyway, she doesn't do that. She decides to walk to a friend's house in Claremont. I guess if like taking the foot falcon. If I had a, <laughs> if I had a friend who lived in the suburb,、mm-hmm. I wouldn't put myself past making the same decision. Just walk to their place. Yeah, yeah, it would have been pretty close. Yeah, she was obviously determined to walk because she could have just gone and asked these friends, be、mm. like, "Hey, does anyone have five bucks?" Maybe she didn't know them that well. Maybe. Yeah. Look, we can't. Don't know. She did what she did. Yeah. So Claremont is a western suburb of Perth. It's pretty affluent. Yeah. So I guess it's a pretty nice suburb.、Mm-hmm. You're not really walking in a dodgy area, maybe、mm-hmm. you would think. She started walking through a small park where she was grabbed from behind by a man. He bound, gagged, and blindfolded her, and then carried her into the back of his car. He drove for around twenty-five minutes when he stopped and got her out of the car. Then he grabbed her under her arms and dragged her into a cemetery. This is where he raped her for around ten to fifteen minutes. 
Dude, that's terrifying. A cemetery? Mm. She didn't know she was in the cemetery yet. Oh, God. Because she's blindfolded. Oh, but, yeah. But that is scary. He then got up and walked off. She laid still until he came back and picked her up and threw her into the bushes. He left again but heard her struggling to get free, so he came back, picked her up again and threw her into the centre of some denser bushes. She pretended to be unconscious until she heard his car start and drive away. She then kicked the cord off that was tying her feet and rolled out of the bushes. She ran through the bushes and out the cemetery gate. By now it was getting light and she had no clothes on the lower part of her body. Crying, she ran through the streets surrounding the cemetery. She came by some houses but didn't want to knock because she was too scared and also embarrassed because she didn't have any clothes on or her lower half. She managed to like wiggle her vest. She was wearing a vest. She managed to, like, wiggle it off her shoulders and, like, kind of wrap it around her, like, waist, I guess. But, yeah. She managed to find a building with a phone in the foyer, but she couldn't press the buttons because her hands were still tied. She tried calling triple zero, but it didn't work. It must have been, like, an intercom phone. Like, if you pick it up, it automatically rings someone on on the other side. Because a woman picked up. Kay said, can you help me? Come and get me. The woman asked where she was, but Kay didn't know. She told the woman that she'd been raped and started crying. She then ran out of the building, but saw headlights. Immediately, she was horrified that it was the man who attacked her. She hid behind some cars, where she ripped her hands free of the cord, although it was still wrapped around her left hand. She watched the vehicle drive past and noted that it was a white van. I think the word van was thrown around a little more loosely back in the 90s than it is now, Can't really tell if she meant like a minivan or like a panel van. She found a phone booth and managed to call her parents' number. They answered and asked where she was. She saw the sign for Hollywood Hospital and told them to meet her there. The police were called to the hospital once she told the nurse what had happened. When her dad got to the hospital, he removed the cord from Kay's wrist and noted that it was a telecom extension cord, about four metres long and cream in colour. Kay described her attacker as approximately 20 to 25 years old, with straight brown, medium-length hair. She said that he was Caucasian, about 6 foot, with quite a solid build and an Australian accent. She couldn't remember if he had facial hair, and said that he was wearing a light t-shirt and jeans. So literally, every anyone. Straight brown, medium-length hair. Oh, it is the 90s. Yep, everyone. But I guess that's not the most common male hairstyle. Maybe. Medium-length. What is medium length? Is medium length like chin? No, I think it's like like ear. You know, like they have some... It's a bit longer than short, but it's not long. It's not long. That would be the meaning of medium. What's Keanu Reeves then? Long or medium? Depends. Uh, Right now? Right now, yeah. I guess if I had to describe him to a police officer... What What would you say his hair is? I'd say it was a beautiful tall man with shoulder length hair. Shoulder length, right. So medium is maybe not quite shoulder length. Yeah. Okay. That's why I'm saying ears. 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 Okay. And now that we've covered the last of the first three, we can move on to what we could call the big three cases related to this serial killer. We're going to call it the big three because if you do know about this case already or you're familiar... These are probably the three cases you already know about. Sarah Spears was 18 years old in 1996 and worked as a secretary. On the 26th of January 1996, Sarah's sister Amanda dropped her off at Club Bayview in the Claremont area. 
It was Australia Day, and she just had a picnic in the park with some friends during the day. Amanda says Sarah had been drinking and was drunk, but wasn't stumbling around or anything. Yeah, picnic in the park, drunk. Outdoors, drunk.、Mm. At one thirty a.m., Sarah went to her friend Emma McCormack on the dance floor and said she was leaving. Emma said she was leaving with her boyfriend soon if she wanted to wait, but Sarah said she was ready to go now. I swear we've had this exact. That exact interaction. Yes. Classic dance floor miscommunication. Yeah. Emma said that Sarah was speaking clearly. She wasn't upset, and there was nothing unusual. At two o six a.m., Sarah called a taxi from a phone booth, which, if you note, is half an hour after she went up to her friend. Right. So, so it seems like Emma was lying. Or Emma was ready to go, but she thought Sarah had already left, so she just left. No,、nah, I bet she was still. There. I don't know why I'm defending Emma. Just because. <laughs> Because I People am always、Emma. like, "Oh, I'll go in half an hour." Still there, two hours、yeah. later. I'm like, "Can we go?" You're right. <laughs> On the phone, she requested to be taken to a suburb nearby, Mosman Park, even though she lived in South Perth with her sister. I guess we don't really know why. Not a hundred percent. I guess we can only assume that maybe she had a friend that lived in Mosman Park. Yeah. Sarah was wearing beige linen shorts, a white or light coloured T-shirt, a black jacket that she had tied around her waist, and light coloured shoes. She was seen waiting on a corner of Stirling Road and the Stirling Highway by three witnesses, who recall seeing an unidentified car stop where she was waiting. A dude called Mark Laidman says that he was driving home from Club Bayview with his friends just after 2 a.m. They pulled up to the red light at the intersection Sarah was at and saw someone matching her description standing at the corner opposite the phone box. So, to if you're picturing it, they were basically like pulled up beside her. She would have only been like a couple meters away from the car. Yeah, but she'd walked away from the phone box. Yeah, she went and stood on the opposite corner. Right, right, right. To wait for the taxi. You know how sometimes. Yeah, they're coming the from the other way. Yeah, and you try and meet them. Yeah. But I guess she wouldn't have known which way it was going to come from. It's not like Uber when you when you can see where your driver is at. So she was taking a gamble. Maybe she knew the taxi hub. Yeah. Was that side、Or、of town? Maybe she knew she she was going that way. Right. So it would make sense if she. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows about taxis? Yeah. Mark was at the traffic lights for about ten to fifteen seconds. While they were stopped at the lights, a car pulled up behind them. The lights changed, and Mark went through the lights. He says he looked back, and the car hadn't followed them through. He thought this was odd because the light was green, right? So, dude should have gone after him.、Mm-hmm. Logically. So we can infer that this car potentially stopped where Mark had been and had perhaps picked up Sarah at two o nine a.m. She was not seen at the site when the taxi arrived. The taxi driver says he glanced at the telephone box, but not to the other corner. He didn't see anyone. He picked up another fare five minutes later, and when he went through the intersection again, there was still no one there. So in three minutes, she was gone, never to be seen again. Dude, just look the other direction. Yeah, he didn't. He looked at the telephone box, but not the other corner. Which seems strange if you're pulling up to an intersection. Like maybe it's different now, but like looking for a customer, you're like, yeah, oh, where you'd be like, where are they? There are four people who came forward saying that they were awoken by a woman screaming between two thirty and three a.m. on this night. The screams were described as about three screams, which one person described as quote very high pitched. Desperate, blood-curdling, terrible screams. The screams came from a woman and did not last very long—maybe a second. 
After the screams, one witness says that he saw a car on St. Leonard Street and heard two doors slam, two car doors slam, within five to ten seconds. It had its lights on and was on the wrong side of the road. This guy was a mechanic, and he said the car was light-coloured or cream and believed it was a station wagon because of where the license plate lamp was. I'm going to pretend I know what that is. <laughs> the thing that lights up the license plate. Yeah. He believes it was a Toyota Corona. So this happened on Saturday morning, and she had made plans with friends for Sunday night. When she didn't turn up, everybody thought that was odd. Amanda, her sister, filed a missing persons report on the 31st, so three days later. I guess three days sounds like a lot of time, but she went missing on the morning of the 27th, had evening plans for the 28th, and then 29.30, then she files the report. So three days after she didn't turn up to the plans. But she's an adult, and her sister's an adult, and I imagine she lives with her family. People are in and out, and you just don't, if people are busy, plans don't line up, that you don't suspect too much until quite a few days have passed, that kind of thing. Yeah, and if she was 18, we don't know what her work schedule was like. Yeah. Maybe she didn't work on, like, Monday or Tuesday or something. Yeah. So she didn't... It wasn't like people were like, oh, she didn't come to work. Like, and maybe they just assumed she was out doing 18-year-old things. It was summer. She probably had heaps of friends. Wouldn't have had a mobile phone. It was the... 90s, yeah. So she wouldn't have been texting anyone being like, I'm okay. I'm with this person. So it's not that strange, I would say. It seems odd. It seems like, Amanda, what were you doing? But I think that it is explainable. Yeah. Yeah. Within 48 hours, her disappearance was taken up by the major crime squad, but they struggled to come up with much. Since she had gone missing, Sarah has never touched her bank account or appeared at a border checkpoint, and they never found her body. And by June... The major crime squad would have another case on their hands. Jane Rimmer was 23 years old and, like Sarah, had been out with friends on the 8th of June when she ended up at Club Bayview. Jane's friends explained that they had hopped from the Ocean Beach Hotel to the Continental Hotel and finally to Club Bayview. The line at Club Bayview was long, so her friends caught a taxi home, but Jane stayed out. She is seen on security footage outside the Continental Hotel at 12.04am. On the night of the 8th of June, or the early hours of Sunday the 9th, two families who lived in Wellard, which is 40 kilometres south of Perth and is fairly rural, heard screaming coming from near their properties. One man said he heard a woman saying, Leave me alone. Stop. Let me out here. He says the words were plain and clear and lasted for five minutes, maybe longer. Okay, clear and plain, man. Ever fancy calling the police? Yeah, and all of these people that said, oh yeah, we heard these screams, they all said that it was like very out of ordinary for the area, very out of character. But none of them thought... So out of character, they couldn't fathom ringing the authorities. Like it woke them up, it was after midnight, and they were just like, oh, none of my business. Mm. Maybe that was the vibe. Yeah, that kind of error. After her disappearance... The West Australian Police Force set up a special task force called MACRO to investigate both her and Sarah's cases. They're back at it again with the task force with names. You're right. MACRO. MACRO's much cooler than Task Force Harrisville. Yeah. MACRO. The biggest. MACRO. They're taking a MACRO lens. Really covering all the ground. Covering the whole of West Australia. It's got ring. 
Task Force Macro had over 100 members across 10 teams, but has come under quite a bit of criticism for their work. This involved a controversial distribution of questionnaires to 110 persons of interest, which involved some pretty confrontational questions, including, are you the killer? Do they think that was going to work? I don't know. You answer yes. I don't know. And then? <laughs> Maybe they just wanted to, like, Throw scare you. them? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, right. They also relied a bit on international experts and used an imported lie detector machine. But, okay, this is Perth. It's not exactly crime central. Maybe they just didn't really know how to approach it. Yeah. I don't see any qualms here. Maybe the... Yeah. The questionnaire was a bit dodge. Maybe it's the first time they ever wrote one. Just what did they think they were going to get out of just, like, mailing out a questionnaire? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. And the imported lie detector machine? I don't know about that either. But we put, they didn't have much science about those back then, I guess. Yeah. We probably just thought they were the bee's knees. Yeah. Anyway. It was over a month later, 55 days, when Jane's naked body was discovered in bushland in Wellard, 40 kilometres south of where she'd last been seen. The area she was found in was consistent with an area that one of the witnesses had identified as the source of the screams. A family was driving along the road when a chicken ran across the road in front of their car. They stopped and got out to chase the chicken away. It didn't want to get off the road for some reason. Why did the chicken not cross the road? Because it was there for a reason. It was there for a reason. The mum saw some death lilies across the road and went over to pick them. She saw a larger lily further in the bush and went to pick it. She felt what she thought was a stick touch the back of her leg. But when she turned around, she saw Jane's body under some branches. It took her a while to realise what she was looking at. Once she realised, she screamed to her husband and told her kids to get back into the car. That's almost written like a screenplay. Man, death lilies. The chicken fortuitously crossing in front of the car. Mm. The mum going to search for the lilies. The mum having a botanical interest. Yeah. Everything. The whole universe... It did, right? Conjured up that moment. Mm. Jane was face down and naked from the waist down. The parts of her body that weren't covered by vegetation had been damaged by nearby animals. Because of how far along the decomposition process the body was, it was unable to be said what the cause or time of death was. Jane had a large wound on her neck. And when I say large, to give you some perspective, it was about 17 by 9 centimetres. Hmm which is... that's pretty long. It's pretty big. It went across the surface of her jawline and opened up, coming down to the top of her collarbone and across the breastbone. It was so large and open that it exposed the bones of the spine. Most of the soft underlying tissue was absent, probably from decomposition. Yeah, she was lying face down, so... The animals animals probably couldn't have gotten... Couldn't get there. It was also noted that the position of her left arm was very unusual. Apparently when most people die, they'll have their arms alongside their torso, but Jane's arm was by her head, extending upwards. Her wrist was also bent back, which apparently was weird too. She had a cut on this left wrist, which would have been a classic location for a self-defence injury, but again, it was hard to determine with certainty if that was the case. Do you think we can infer that maybe she was like, like, thrown there because of the placement of her arm. I think that's what they might be kind of saying. Yeah. Because I think it's important to 
it's like sometimes important for them to work out whether they were killed there, killed somewhere else and chucked there. And I guess body position and like yeah. blood um, stains your Blood clothes. stains? Tide lines, they call them. Oh. They call them tide lines. Right. Where it like stops. Yep. And whether gravity would have done that. Anyway. Oh. <clears throat> yeah. In the position that you're in. Real Sherlock Holmes. There was no obvious injury pointing to sexual assault, as in there was no injury to the genital tissues, but that doesn't rule out sexual penetration. A knife was also found in the area where Jane was found. It bore markings that indicated that it was one produced for Telstra and had been distributed to their technicians. However, the evidence wasn't strong enough to link the knife to Jane's killer. There was no DNA on the knife that linked it to Jane, and anyone could have gone to the spot it was found without having to first go past where Jane was found. As in, it wasn't a one-way street. You could go in a bit, put the knife down, and come back out the same way. There were 4,200 of these knives in Perth. There may have been Telstra technicians in the area for legitimate work who had misplaced the knife. Nine months later, we're in the next year, so 1997, and still in Claremont. Kira Glennon was a young lawyer living in Mossman Park. She had been out with friends in Claremont on Friday the 14th of March. It was actually Friday drinks at the firm she was working at. They had an in-office bar on the 16th floor of the building where they often had drinks. You can't have those now. Like, legally? Uh, well, I don't know, but I don't think anyone has them. That's oh. asking for some trouble. So you're saying people might get dr- too drunk and too yeah. rowdy. Well, that's... Yeah, at, like at work, kind of. Oh. Not at work, but like on, you know, it's like a work-endorsed thing. Okay. Yeah. I don't think they don't really exist anymore. Kira was seen drinking champagne and white wine between 5.30 and 11 p.m. Then a partner drove them down to the Continental Hotel and they arrived there at around 11.30 p.m. She was with friends at the Continental Hotel. Then she decided to go home. All of these girls are such a mood. They just want to go home. They just want to go home. This could be me. This is me. Yeah. On any given night. She left the Continental at 11.45 p.m. There are various accounts of how drunk she was. Some people were like, yeah, you could tell she'd been drinking, that she was kind of stumbling. And someone said that she, quote, appeared to him like someone who had had a long day and it was hot. She probably had a few drinks, but she was talking fine. I stumble all the time when I'm sober. I'm falling around the place. Yeah, nothing like heat stroke. Yeah, you're right. Heat stroke and drunk? Oh, I would go home. That's too much. Gross. It seems that rather than calling a taxi... Kira intended to walk, or even hitchhike back home. She was seen walking towards Fremantle along the Stirling Highway by a number of witnesses. Three men at a bus stop saw Kira walking along the highway at around 12.30am and observed her chatting with somebody in an unidentified light-coloured vehicle who had stopped by her. By the way, the media called these guys the Burger Boys because they were eating burgers. (laughs) They were eating Hungry Jacks at the bus stop. That's a mood. Oh, I love that. I've... Oh, I have this, like, vivid memory of I was at this, like, somewhat formal event. And I, like, didn't want to go to the after party. I was like, I'm actually leaving. And I went and got Hungry Jacks. And I was just, like, smashing this burger at the tram stop at, like, 1 a.m. In my, like, cocktail dress. So good. So good. It was such a mood. You're a burger girl. I'm a burger girl. Troy Bond, one of the burger boys, saw someone who matched Kira's description walking along the road. She had her hand out like she was hitchhiking, so he yelled at her and said, You're stupid for hitchhiking! Thanks, Troy. Yeah, but what could he do? Yeah. He was waiting for a bus. Well, he could have... And mm. smashing a burger. He says it through a mouthful of burger. 
<laughs> she gave Troy the finger and kept walking. Yeah, that's, that's, mood. A, that's something yeah. I would do. I've done that all. I do that all the time. Have a man shout at you and you're like, and I'm like, mm, I can't think of something quick enough. Can't think of something funny to say. Well, Troy, look, Troy probably could have like delivered it better, but his incentive was not wrong. Mm. You know. Yeah. Hitchhiking and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. But people in the nineties didn't really know that as well as the we do now. Well, evidently. Yeah. So she'd come from work drinks. Mm-hmm. So she was wearing a black blazer, a black skirt, and a light or white colored shirt. Troy then looked up shortly after, and probably after he took another huge munch of that burger, yeah. and saw someone in a white blouse leaning over talking to someone in a car. Troy said that the car was a white VS Holden Commodore station wagon and that it was in pretty good condition. I do appreciate these dudes, like, taking such note of the cars. If you were, like, asked me what what car I saw on whatever night, I'd be like, well, it was a car. <laughs> and I guess it was red. <laughs> you That's trying, it. You're trying to find the Uber and they're like, it's a Toyota Camry. And I'm you're like, like oh my Thank God. you for telling me absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm like, Helen, what is it? You're like, it's a... a t- uh, t- <laughs> It's a Toyota Camry. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, this one in front of us? Yeah. At most, I can tell you the color and that it wasn't a van or a truck, <laughs> that right, it was yeah. a car. And that's about as far or a ute? as I can go. Oh, yeah. I can tell if it's not a ute. Yeah. Or a bus. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But yeah, these guys out here like recognizing cars. Nice. Okay. Troy's friend, Brandon Gray, backs him up on the Commodore theory. Brandon goes on to say that he was specifically checking this Commodore out because it looked like a semi-custom car, like it wasn't just off the line. I literally have no idea what I'm saying. (laughs) And so I guess Brandon was really into uh, cars and different models and whatever, so he could point that out for us. Yeah. He was thinking about buying a Commodore, is what he said. So he was sussing him out. He's munching on his burger, thinking like, wow. Cool car. Sick car. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've never done that. Brandon estimates that they were talking for around a minute, but he doesn't see what happens to her because they left and started walking the other way. The burger boys, they left. They finished their burger. They gave up on the bus. The bus wasn't coming. They're going to get another burger. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. After Kira's disappearance, the police confirm that they were indeed now searching for a serial killer, and the Western Australian government offered a reward of $250,000, which was the largest ever offered in the state at that point in time. 19 days later, on the 3rd of April, a bushwalker called Jason Atkinson was, well, bushwalking. He was bushwalking around in Eglinton, which is about 40 kilometers north of the city. But really, he had gone to the Pippadini Road area that day to look for some cannabis. Ooh, <laughs> Jason! <laughs> He also didn't have to oust himself like that. He could have just been like, yeah, I was just bushwalking. Dude, that is so primal. Hunter-gathering your weed. Yeah. Yeah. Cutting it off the ground. Yeah. Harvesting. Harvesting. God. You know, sounds like a fun morning. He was walking through the bush when he smelt something really bad. It was around 9am and he thought the smell might have been a dead kangaroo and went to go check to see. Apparently, he normally checks the pouches of dead kangaroos to see if there's a uh, joey inside, I guess. Gotta protect the joeys. Yeah. He nears a pile of vegetation that the smell seemed to be coming from and pulled back some bush to get a better look. So he pulls back a bit more bush. 
When he realized that it was a human body about two feet away, he dropped the bush and ran to his car. He drove to his fiancée's work, which was about four minutes away, and told them to call the police. He then took the police to where the body was located. Imagine, you're at work. Your fiancé busts down the door from his morning weed hunting-gathering session, demands you call the police. Yeah, crazy. All of these body discovery stories are so dramatic. They are dramatic, aren't they? Yeah. Something about them. This one really... Yeah. This guy's story in the forest looking for some weed. And the fact that he was so inclined to see if there was a joey in the kangaroo's pouch. Yeah, true. It just seems like the universe was up to something. You know what? It was. It was that the universe placed that man there on yeah. that morning. Yeah. Because if I smelt a bad smell, I'd be like, I'd be like oh, bye. God, and just back it up. He leads the police to where he found the body. And it was Kira. She was found semi-clothed and half-covered in vegetation. In the same way that Jane's was covered, half-covered in bush as well. Mm -hmm. Kira had multiple wounds around her head and neck. Her throat had been cut almost completely around. Only a section of seven centimeters on the left side remained intact. She had horizontal and vertical wounds. The horizontal aspect extended from the right side of her neck at the back of the head and to the left side of the neck and measured 21 centimeters. The vertical aspect was found to be 12 centimeters from the top of the skull to below the jaw. These two wounds joined up, producing a gap in the neck, which was 8 centimeters wide. It was determined that this was the cause of death, from the incised or penetrating wounds to the neck caused by a sharp instrument. Bloodstains on her clothes indicated that she was wounded at the Pippadini Road site, in the position she was found in, or at least very shortly before she was placed into that position. That's what I was talking about. What was it called? The Tide Lines. Tide Lines. Kira had a defensive injury to her right arm and other signs of struggle, including broken nails on both her left and right hands. Her clothes were still on, but her skirt had been moved. However, her handbag, jacket, brooch, and shoes were missing, meaning it might have been a robbery. But since she had the same clothes and jewellery on, it's likely that her death happened in a relatively short amount of time after she went missing. Yeah, it was a lot easier for them to determine cause of death here because she hadn't been at that site for as long as Jane. Yeah. Task Force Macro is still going, and they're still coming up empty. People in Perth are scared, and they need to start coming up with some answers. Maybe it was due to the urgency of the situation, but they start to become quite blinkered, narrowly focusing on the initial prime suspect, despite the lack of direct evidence. In April of 1998, 41-year-old Lance Williams was identified as the prime suspect after his odd behaviour attracted attention. They had been honing in for quite some time now. Police had decoy followed this man, who was driving around after midnight and circling the Claremont area up to 30 times a night. Lance lived with his parents and had never been married. I think he was going through it, right? It kind of makes sense that maybe he was just driving around. Yeah. He sounds like a guy in a midlife crisis, to be honest. And the videos of him, they make me so angry because these reporters go up to him and he's just kind of like, yeah, he's quietly spoken. He's kind of mild-mannered. Sure, maybe he's got some personality quirks or whatever. Mm. But you said he... Didn't you tell me that he like was suffering from depression? Yeah, because his friend had passed away. Look. I think like... Sucks. 
going just going for a drive. It's not illegal to just go for a drive. Do you yeah, know what I mean? and he was circling, but where else are you gonna go in Perth? Yeah, and um, he lived with his parents, and they were under like watch. You know, they surveillance. were surveillance, like intense surveillance for so long. And his parents had to go through that as well. Mm-hmm. And he probably felt doubly bad because he was a forty-year-old man living with his parents. He's putting his family through that. Come on, it just yeah. sucks. It just sucks. It does suck for Lance and Lance. He like asked to take a lie detector test, right? Remember? Yeah. From he, that imported lie detector machine. Yeah. Because he thought it was going to help him. He thought it was going to clear his name. And yeah. Then, and other people had and had mm-hmm. like passed. But he didn't pass he it. He failed. Probably because he was nervous. Yeah. Because of all this they'd attention been... and pressure. Yeah. And his name's like now just always tied to this case. Kind of fucked up his life a little bit. Yeah. So... He passed away in 2018. Yeah. Eventually... Lance's name was cleared. They stopped. They said he was no longer a suspect anymore. So, apart from this misstep, the initial suspicion centred on the unidentified vehicles seen at the two locations and on an unidentified man seen in the video footage. But the footage was not the best. It was the 90s. It was black and white. It was dark, so it was pretty grainy. Um... You couldn't really see many faces. There was a lot of the backs of people's heads, so it wasn't that useful. Suspicion also fell on taxi drivers, but in a pre-ride-sharing era, there were more than 3,000 registered taxi drivers in 1996, a huge and first-ever mass fingerprint and DNA testing exercise was carried out on thousands of taxi drivers, and background searches were conducted on all drivers. 78 drivers with significant criminal history were de-licensed, and due to evidence of a number of unlicensed operators, stricter standards were implemented for eligibility. The police also had evidence from this thing called the Telstra Living Witness Project. There are seven incidents that fall into this category of evidence, and they all kind of link to a Telstra vehicle or a vehicle used in telecommunication work that was, I guess, seen in the area or involved in these incidents in the Claremont area. There's no... We don't really need to go into these in a, in a whole heap of detail because they were fairly similar, but it's basically... There was these seven incidents that occurred between Cottesloe and Claremont, which I think uh, border each other, and it was basically girls who had been out at... A lot of them at Club Bayview or Ocean Beach Hotel between midnight and 3am when they're on their way home... They were kind of approached by a vehicle. Some of them thought it was a taxi and hailed it. Some of them, it just approached them. And the driver of the car asked them if they needed a lift. And um, some of them took it. Some of them didn't. There was a few occasions where these women were sexually harassed by the driver. And the descriptions of this this driver vary quite a lot. Some people say that he was 6'7 and had broad shoulders. Others say that he was 5'6 and slim. Some say brown curly hair. Others say short fair hair. And the age bracket ranges quite a bit as well. To be fair, it was dark when all of these happened. And I would be shocking at having to pick a guy's age and height while they're sitting in a car. So we'll cut these girls some slack. But yeah, this also didn't give them that many leads. It seems like at least some of them were, were probably linked. It seems like more than just a coincidence. But, yeah, didn't end up being that helpful in their investigation. 
Yeah. And we also don't know if any of these incidents were linked to any of the disappearances. But it's just probably interesting to note because it's been in the same area. It was all young girls. It was taxis, light-coloured car. Like, it was light-coloured cars. Line. And they call it the Telstra Living Witness Project because a lot of them did say that the car had a Telstra logo once they got close to it. Yeah. DNA was taken from under Kira's fingernails as well as other samples at the scene and in post-mortem. At the time, the science of DNA testing was not advanced to reveal anything that could assist in identifying the killer, but they were smart and kept the evidence. In 2008, they did what was called low-copy number testing, which I think is like uh, used to pick up DNA in smaller sample sizes. This test revealed that the DNA under Kira's fingernails came from two people. We can assume one of them was Kira, so the other was likely to have been her killer. This DNA was matched to the DNA taken from intimate swabs from the Karakutta offence. Which is the third one of our first three, the graveyard assault. Yeah, the girl Karakata. called Kay. Yeah. Throwback. Yeah. Other than this DNA linking up, there was also something else linking up. Blue, non-delusted rayon fibres were found on Kay's shorts, Jane's hair, Kira's hair, and Kira's shirt. These blue fibres matched properties in control fibres from a pair of Telstra pants. And it was very likely that those fibres came from Telstra clothing because the dye that was used was known as Telstra Navy, since it was almost entirely used for Telstra uniforms. Bro, we could go on forever about how they proved that these were all the same fibres. I, like, read... I read pages and pages and pages of ex- fibre experts. Right. Talking all about the little differences in the fa- in the fibres. Why some of them were lighter and darker. Why some of them were, like, different blends. Why some of them, like, whoa. Crazy. Whoa. Who knew there was so much science in fibres? Right. I thought you just looked really close in a microscope. Yeah. Zoom in. I think, but, and then I think when you zoom in... There's more. There's a whole new world. There's a whole new world. And you lose sight of the bigger picture. <laughs> Right, right. I'm getting a little philosophical. Right, Ariz is a fibre expert. Yeah, I am now. In December 2015, new fibre evidence from Jane Rimmer's case indicated that she had been in a VS Series 1 Holden Commodore. Troy. <laughs> the Burger Boys. Troy and Brendan are like, back. We knew it. With burgers. Yeah. They're like Batman and Robin. <laughs> Cute. So, we've got Telstra Fibres. The VS Commodore fibres. Some DNA is starting to link up between these cases. And to top it off, they also pull the kimono down off the rack. Which was from the very first Huntingdale house break-in. It also had DNA on it, which matched the DNA from Kira's fingernails and uh, taken from Kay. They also had fingerprints that linked up the Hollywood Hospital incident and the Huntingdale incident. So the first two. They start doing some real thinking about all of this. We don't know what order they made all of these links, but somewhere along the way, it all starts adding up, and they start honing in on a man named Bradley Robert Edwards. Bradley worked as a Telstra technician and drove a VS Commodore while he worked at Telstra. Back in 1990, Edwards had been convicted of the assault at Hollywood Hospital. So that's how he was on their radar. Edwards was a coach for Little Athletics and seemed to be a somewhat upstanding member of the community, kind of hiding in plain sight. 
Yeah, aren't they always? Mm. On December the 22nd, 2016, Bradley Edwards was arrested under suspicion of the deaths of Rimmer and Glennon, so the last two girls. He was formally charged the next day with their murders, and also charged in relation to the Huntingdale housebreak and the Karakata graveyard assault. His DNA was obtained, and ding, 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 results came back that it was 80 million times more likely, using Caucasian population data, that the mixed sample was of Edwards and Kira rather than some unrelated, unknown person and Kira. The Commodore fibers also matched the interior carpet of the car that Edwards had been allocated when he worked for Telstra in the 90s. The car had been owned by other people since Edwards, but none of them had any links to Telstra. It was also likely that Edwards owned and wore the pants in question during the time he was employed for Telstra, which included 1996 and 97. There are these order forms proving that he had both long pants and shorts. Mm, versatile. It was likely that the fibres were shed from the pants onto the vehicle, which is probably how they got onto the girls when they were placed in the vehicle. They had to look at every single place that the women had been during the day, anyone that got close to them when they were found, the other owners of the car, just so many other sources to rule out before mm. we come to any conclusion, you know? So many things you don't even think of. Like, I think Jane had gotten her hair done the morning she disappeared, and the woman that did her hair also worked at Telstra. What a multi-talented individual. Yeah. <laughs> but also, like, what a coincidence. Yeah. And then they had to, like, work out whether that woman, even though she didn't wear the pants, like, she didn't wear the Telstra pants, yeah. whether she'd, like, come in contact with a technician, had gotten the fibres on her, they'd gotten onto Jane. That's like, true. Fibres are tiny. They're tiny. Like, dust particles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, could be breathed onto you. Yeah. They had to rule everyone out. On the 22nd of February, 2018, he was also charged with the willful murder of Sarah Spears. So the first girl in our big three. On the 21st of October, 2019, Edwards pled guilty to the Huntingdale house break-in and the Karakata incident. He'd already been, been there, done that with the Hollywood Hills one as well. Hollywood Hospital. Yeah, sorry, the hospital. And I guess we can note, it's been three years since he's been arrested mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pint is passing but i guess they have a lot to sort out they've got a lot of evidence to get into yep yeah the trial began on november 25th 2019 the trial lasted over seven months and heard from over 200 witnesses fun fact the judge handed his verdict down on the final day that edwards would be remanded in custody so he had a deadline and he delivered Along with all the forensic evidence, the prosecution used the first three offences to build tendency evidence, which, as we said, is the Huntingdale, Karakata, Hospital, those three. Basically, that Edwards had a tendency to act a certain way, which makes it more likely that he committed the offences on trial, hence tendency evidence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would have heaps of tendency evidence that I act a certain way. <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah, tendency was, uh, I struggled with that a little when I did uh, evidence last semester. Right. Couldn't really wrap my head around it. Thank God it didn't come up much on the exam. Right. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, has its own rules. Because you can't just be like, it's got to be more than just a coincidence that you can't just be like, oh, Helen normally has, like, milk in her coffee, so she must have been the one that stole the milk from the shop. <laughs> you got to make, like, it's got to be pretty good. I would, though. <laughs> Solid tendency. Yeah, you'd steal three bottles of milk just so you have enough. <laughs> yep. 
for the week. Yeah. I'll open them all at the same time. With all this tendency evidence and forensic evidence coming for him, it all equated to one very guilty Bradley Edwards. Edwards was found guilty of the murder of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, but not guilty of the murder of Sarah Spears. Why not Sarah Spears? Well, the judge believed that the evidence was incapable of proving beyond reasonable doubt that he was her killer. The circumstances in which she was taken and how she died are still unknown, and there are inconsistencies in how people heard the screams, about the car, if the screams came from the car. Yeah, they were really only relying on the tendency evidence here, which kind of sucks for her family. She still hasn't been found. The tendency evidence in itself also wasn't that strong. Only the Karakata incident really ended up being useful. I read a little um, opinion piece of someone talking about this. Um, So this is not my original thought. But a lot of people, some people on the internet were kind of saying like, oh, why didn't, you know, just convict him for this, for Sarah Spears as well, whatever. And then someone said that it was smart for the judge to not do that because it it would have weakened the whole conviction and it would have made it much easier to overturn on appeal. So, yeah, Justice Hall was, he was thinking. Edwards is due to be sentenced on the 23rd of December 2020. His trial cost over $11 million, and of this, $3.5 million was the legal aid bill for Edwards' defence. That's a lot of money. Yeah, damn. It's a long... Was it a long trial? Yeah, it was seven months. Yeah. Pretty long. It's been suggested by journalist Liam Bartlett that there might be more victims beyond the ones we've spoken about today. Bartlett wrote that police told the father of another missing woman, 22-year-old Julie Cutler, that she probably was also a victim of the Claremont killer. Julie had vanished after leaving a staff function at the Pamelia Hilton Hotel at 9pm on the 20th of June, 1988. Her car was found a couple of days later, but she has never been found to this day. Other possible cases include two sex workers, Lisa Brown and Sarah McMahon, who disappeared in 1998 and 2000, respectively. Yeah. Checks out. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a thing that crime junkies do, is, like, look at disappearance and whatever, and, like, also look at serial killer movements in the area during that time. Oh, yeah. See what else could have maybe also have happened. Well, Liam Bartlett was onto it. Yeah. So I guess after 97, after Kira, he seemingly stopped offending, which is kind of odd. Like, you go from... Uh, 88, the first, the Huntingdale, yep. to 98, you've got this 10-year spree. Yep. And then you just, what, stop? Yeah, well, it seems that he was in a bit of a tumultuous relationship, and he was married and um, s- split up with his first wife in February of 1997, which is the month before Kira went missing. He met his second wife in April 1997 the month after Kira went missing. She had a young daughter when they met his second wife, and they were together until 2014, and they split up, but the daughter, who was now 21, continued to live with Edwards after that. And her mother was like, if I had known what I know now, I never would have let my daughter live with him. She's spoken out and said that. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So I guess like... He became a family man. He kind of became this family man. Man, strange minds. Yeah. But did little athletics and 
Weird. Yeah. Just stopped. Yeah. Well, that we know of. And of the three, I mean, we never found Sarah, but of um, of Jane and Kira, mm-hmm. there were no, like, signs of sexual assault. There's no ruling out that something mm-hmm. could have happened. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if, and we don't know with Sarah, which was never found, definitely with um, Caracato Girl was sexual assault. Yeah. What was he doing? It is odd, right? Yeah. 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 The motives, the motive was, was loose. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Except Club Bayview. That was always, it was always there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That wasn't loose. He was consistently going back to Oh, the to Continental. It. That's where Kira was. Yeah. The Claremont area. The Claremont serial killer. Bam. That was his motif, I guess. Claremont. Mm-hmm. Had for Lance. Mm-hmm. My boy got dogged in. Yeah. Falsely. And... Sad for everyone here. Yeah. Except Edwards. I'm not sad for him. Yeah. He can... And all those people who didn't call the police. <laughs> yeah. Y'all, if you hear something whack going on in your neighborhood... Call the police, especially if it's a, like a woman shouting for help. Leave me alone. What? Yeah. Guys. Yeah. Maybe it was a mind your business kind of era. But now, better safe than sorry. Now, we're nosy bitches. No, yeah. Red-handed has spooky bitches. Bad <laughs> apple has nosy bitches. bitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode where we cover the Claremont serial killer. Probably our most topical case, would you say? Quite yeah. topical. Quite topical. Yeah. That and Grace Mullane. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. um with the times. Yeah. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, whatever you're doing. And we will catch you guys next week. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I'll see you next week, Helen. Yeah, please. <laughs> please <laughs> we just walk around the house with our eyes shut for a week <laughs> oh god i just move out <laughs> i live on the street i live in your car <laughs> oh, god. anyway see you guys bye, bye.